You are listening to a Victory Alabang podcast. Jesus calls each of us to love our enemies. Know more about this truth in this message by Pastor Ariel Marquez. Welcome to our uh, brand new series entitled, I Wish Jesus Didn't Say That. We just ended our uh, Holy Week series last week, last week being our Easter Sunday. And, um, you know, we had a great ride. Actually, it's uh, entitled Behind Semana Santa. And so we're shifting gears. We're going to be having this uh, new series as a uh, four-week uh, part series. Basically, another way to say this is these are like the hard sayings of Jesus. How I many of you know that there are some things in the Bible that are really hard to comprehend? Sometimes hard to obey. How I many of you are, sometimes, if you're going to be honest, how I many of you are sometimes having a hard time comprehending and obeying God's Word in the Bible? I mean, there are just some stuff there that are nice, you know, like being blessed by God and, you know, uh, being forgiven and being saved. But there are some things that, you know, somehow would look at that and would say this, I wish Jesus didn't say that. And so our objective for this particular series in the next four weeks is that our people will have a better understanding of some of the difficult sayings or maybe teachings of Christ and eventually submit to His Lordship and find that we can actually obey them by the grace of God. And so these are some of the things that we would find in the Bible, some hard sayings that sometimes when you look at the Bible, you'd rather delete that. You'd rather take a Caesar and uh, you know, cut some of the parts of the Bible. How many of you know that you cannot just take the Bible you know, in some parts and maybe uh, obey some and not take the other? Because the Bible has to be taken as a whole. Amen. Because the whole counsel of God is very important to us. And so I believe that sometimes when you look at some things in the Word that you don't like to listen to, these are the very things that God would like for us to, have an, to pay attention to and actually obey. And so this next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the hard sayings or difficult teachings of Christ. Actually, there's a lot more, but we're just going to be focusing on four. And so this is going to be an interesting uh, series for, for all of us, all the churches in our uh, in, in Victory, not only in Metro Manila and in, even in some provinces, uh, are actually preaching on this particular topic. And so these are the four things that we're going to be looking at. Some of the hard teachings or the hard sayings of Jesus found in Scripture. And if you have a red letter edition Bible, these are all written in red. When you see something in red, it means that it was Jesus who was the one who said this. First thing that he said is, love your enemies. How many of you know that that's hard? How many of you have enemies? Don't raise your hands. How many of you, maybe some of us don't really have some serious enemies, but we have people that we're offended to. Or maybe people are offended to us. So we're going to be talking about that. Another thing that Jesus said is, sell all you have. Hmm. And give to the poor. Another thing is, hate your family. Did Jesus really say that? You know, he said that you know, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, uh, uh, yeah, you, 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 yeah, you're not worthy of me. Something like that. Okay. So basically, he's, uh, he's saying about that our love for him should be supreme more than our love for our family. And our last topic will be, you will be persecuted. So that's going to be our topics for the next 
four weeks. So they were going to be focusing on love your enemies. Turn to the person beside you and tell that person, I love you. Okay? We want to make sure that you're not sleeping with the enemy, okay? especially that your husband or your wife. All right, and so we're going to be uh, going ahead and diving into our text, our scripture this morning. I'd like to invite everyone to stand. We're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. All right. Verse 43. Can we all read this out loud all together? One, two, three. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you shall be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We ask for your, Lord, just your Holy Spirit to teach us your ways, teach us the truth of God's Word. We open up our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes to see the truth. And may the truth of God change our hearts. Father, we thank you for your grace. I know, Lord God, that this is a very difficult controversial topic to talk about, but we thank you, Lord God, that by the grace of Christ, Lord God, we are able to obey everything that is written on your word. We thank you, Lord God. We commit to you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. Right, so we're going to be focusing on loving your enemies. And maybe you're here and you are a peace-loving guy, but nonetheless, I think growing up, we probably have some things that we've experienced, whether you know, in high school or maybe in elementary, where you got you got bullied, or maybe you're the one who bullied people, or maybe you know you were, you're you know like maybe some of you are not really the teacher's pet, but otherwise, and uh, maybe a professor in college picked on you and gave you a failing grade, or maybe a friend uh, you know maybe betrayed you. So there are different applications of this particular topic, loving your enemies. And this is actually taken from the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, actually a three-chapter sermon of Christ that he preached in the book of Matthew. In fact, if you look at the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew basically focused on the perfect king. And the theme of Matthew is he was presenting Jesus as the coming king. In fact, he was uh, starting with the genealogy of Jesus that he was wanting to make sure that that the Jews would realize that this Jesus was the king that they had all been waiting for. That he came for, he was a son of David. He came from the son of, he was a son of Abraham. So the lineage of Christ was there pointing to him as the perfect king. And so as a king, he would also have his kingdom and he would talk about his dominion and he would talk about his rulership. Part of his things that he, that is, uh, you know, taught us from the book of Matthew, really is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the things that is really very uh, controversial. He focused basically on relationship and not on religion. He was basically coming and refuting the teachings 
of the Pharisees or the religious people during that time because they have actually put a heavy yoke or a burden on the people, you know, wanting to expand the law from the original Ten Commandments. They've had 600 plus different sub-laws that would try to put a yoke on the people. And so Jesus came and clarified, it's not about religion, guys. It's about a relationship with me. And I am the coming king that is here to teach you about that. In fact, if you study the book of Matthew, it's interesting that the book of Matthew, Matthew himself as the gospel writer, he was the tax collector. And uh, there are about six times that he referred to a mountain. You know, I'm not sure if Matthew was, uh, you know, a mountain climber, or, but he's fascinated with mountains. He started off with, you know, the temptations of Christ, you know, got, uh, the enemy brought him to the high mountain, and then he shifted in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, this being the Sermon on the Mount. That is the place where Jesus was sitting, and then the people were listening to him, and so that was the, the setting, a mountain. Of course, we are familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration. He focused on that as well, and there were some healings and miracles that he did on the mountaintop. Uh, the very last words of Jesus when he was giving the, the great commi- commission uh, in Matthew chapter 28 was on a mountain. Before he actually said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The, the verse before that, Jesus brought them to the mountain to explain to them the coming kingdom. And so Matthew has a di- very different fascination about the mountain. And somehow he was probably liking, likening or maybe comparing Jesus as he was speaking the Sermon on the Mount to that of Moses as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. And so that was like the parallelism. And he would want to present to the readers that there is a significance in this coming king as he was teaching this very significant teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you look at... Uh, Chapter 5, particularly the Beatitudes. How many of you are familiar with the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes, you know, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, and so on and so forth. Basically, that was probably quoted more by the, earthly, uh, the, by, by the early fathers in the faith, more than any other scriptures that we have. You know, they've looked at the Sermon on the Mount and studied it, and uh, has actually laid a, uh, almost like a uh, guideline for, for living. And so, the Sermon on the Mount is in no way the qualifications for anyone to be saved. Let me just put that ahead, you know, before we go on, moving further. You know, Jesus was not saying that you've got to do this in order for you to be saved. Because how many of you know that there's only one way that we can be saved? And that is only by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen. And I hope that we will not confuse you know, that with this. But this is more like an evidence of salvation. This is to prove that you are saved. In fact, the very last verse that we've read, so that they may know that you are sons of God, do this. It's a proof of your walk with the Lord. It's a proof of our conversion to Christ. Amen. Not as a way for us to earn salvation. You don't do this to go to the kingdom. You don't try to be good and you don't try to you know, fulfill your vows or you don't try to you know, be faithful to your wife in order for you to be saved. That being done, you, know, you not doing murder and you not being, uh, doing adultery and you uh, fulfilling your vows and you loving your enemies is actually a proof 
of us having a relationship with the Lord. In fact, if you would read this particular book uh, in Matthew 5, and I'd encourage you to read this you know, as, we, as you start your week tomorrow. You know, just go through the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's an interesting read. You know, I love reading through that, you know, uh, reading the Beatitudes. But if you were a Jew during the time of Jesus, what was happening was that was a very uh, complicated sermon that Jesus was actually delivering. In fact, it was offensive to the, to the religious people. What he was saying was he was actually refuting what they were claiming and he was always saying, you've heard it once said, but I say unto you. What he is saying, this was the oral tradition that your religious leaders are saying to you, but this is the written word that I am saying to you. So he was clarifying what is the written word. And so with that, in a few verses before the verse that we've just read, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, in fact, he said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How many of you know that is a hard saying? I mean, if you talk about the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the Sadducees, this guy's memorized the Torah. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. How many of you memorize just the names of the Bible? I mean, this guy's memorized the books. We don't even memorize the names. But yet, he was saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean by this? You know, the first time I heard this, I said, this is impossible. You know, when I was a young Christian, I was reading through this, I said, Lord, is this what you're requiring for me to do? To be like a Pharisee, to be beyond the Pharisees? The Pharisees are regularly fasting. I mean, they fast, and they want to be seen by people, and we fast, you know, once a year. Five, oh, actually, twice a year. Five days and then three days in the middle of the year. But what Jesus was saying is, you are not to base your righteousness on religion. You are to base your righteousness on your relationship with me. Because how many of you know that we can never have perfect righteousness apart from the grace of God? Amen. And righteousness is only imputed to us. The righteousness that Jesus acquired on the cross is given to us the moment you put your faith in the Son of God. So these are some of the six contrast statements that we can actually listen to or actually uh, glean from this text. There are about six things. Right after the Beatitude, we would find out that there's a scripture that Jesus said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, but I actually came to actually fulfill the law. So he was not here trying to mark this X. Don't do this in order to be saved. No. What he was saying is, do this. But do this based on your relationship with me. And so he started pointing the different uh, things that were very controversial at that time. Six contrast statements. And you would actually find Jesus saying this repeatedly six times. You have heard that it was said, blank, blank, blank. But I say to you, so he talked about murder. He talked about adultery. 
He talked about divorce. He talked about making vows before the Lord or swearing. He talked about retaliation. He talked about loving your enemies. And we're going to be focusing on the last one only for today. The religious teachers of the law have misinterpreted some of the laws and they've actually added or freely changed some of the components of the law of God. So we're looking at love your enemies. Who is my enemy? What does it mean to love my enemy? And why do we need to love our enemies? Basically, it's a very simple journey for us this morning. So let's focus on one particular verse that Jesus said. You have heard that it was said. Can we read this out loud? Ready? One, two, three. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus was telling the people, you have heard it was an oral tradition. These were the things taught us by the religious people. Love your neighbor. How many of you, it's natural for us to love our neighbor? It's easy for us to love our neighbor, right? But how many of you, it's also natural for us, being human beings, to hate our enemies? But did that, the question is, did this particular verse really come from the command of God in the Old Testament? Where did this verse come from? Let's look at it right now. It actually was referred to in Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, if you would read that, this is where this verse came from. The Pharisees drew this out from this whole verse. It says, you shall not, everybody say not hate. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That was the very first command, no hate. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was the original text. That was where the law, where the Pharisees took this particular saying and converted a portion of it. So this is basically what they did. They focused on the last verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees thought that if God would teach us to love our neighbor as ourselves, then the converse must be true. If we're to love my neighbor, then I should actually hate my enemy. So they freely changed the law by actually removing the as yourself and adding the hate your enemy. And this is where this actually came from. But you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. As if it was the Lord speaking but it was not actually the one that was commanded to them. Very tricky. In fact, maybe some of us have actually heard this particular saying. Deuteronomy 90, how many of you have quoted this? You know, if somebody wrongs you, you actually, you know, it's in the Bible, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now what does this mean? Is this a way for us to actually be used, to, for us to be able to, to have vengeance and retaliation for the people who offended us? You shall, not, you shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You know, when, when God gave this particular command to Moses, he was not referring to the way that you would react when somebody wrongs you. 
this was written in context of the judicial system, the law, wherein a judge would come and determine the penalty. You know, Judge Lisa is actually here. And it was, you know, a few verses before this. That was in verse 21. But in verse 18 to 19, this is what's written. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. It is not the person who's offended who's going to do this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot. But the judicial law was made so that actually you can actually protect the innocent and actually punish the guilty in the way that is just as determined by God and not to exact your own revenge. Because many times you would actually take this and say, it's happening, Lord. Eye for an eye, let me just take my own revenge. Sayo ang kavite. Sakin ang tondo. Something like that. You know, you know it's, it's, we've, we're familiar with this. We're familiar with Revenge. There's even a TV series that is now being shown in the U.S. entitled Revenge. Can you imagine they're already in season four? For four years, it's all about vengeance. How to get even. So we want to answer, who's my enemy? Who is our enemy? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Can we just go back there? Matthew 5.39. Okay. I will just read it. Matthew 5.39. It says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So an enemy is someone who means us harm. How many of you agree with me on that? I mean, it's very simple. Simple definition. If there's someone who's out there to mean you harm, then that's an enemy. It's considered an enemy. Someone who wants to cause us trouble. Someone who's there who has wronged us, is an enemy. An enemy is actually on the opposing side. Maybe an enemy is a, I don't know, maybe a partner who betrayed you. Maybe there is actually a spouse who committed adultery against you. Maybe there is a friend who became disloyal to you. You're asking for help for the girl that you want to, you know, to court, and he was the one who actually courted her instead of you. And so, there are different situations. Maybe somebody who's bullying you on social media. You know, as an enemy. Or maybe an enemy is someone who's actually, you know, who got your parking space this morning. It's as simple as that. These are people that we can actually look at and say, you know, these people are only after their own self-interest and not after my interest. This is an enemy. These are people who, who's designed to harm us. You know, it's easy to find enemies. Actually, it's, you know, you can actually find them anywhere we go. We can actually make enemies. It's easy to make enemies. If you're different with somebody, that can actually be already a chance for you to be different and to differ and eventually become enemies. But another way for us to look at what enemy is like is maybe 
looking at someone who's inferior to us. In Matthew 5.22, it says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka. Raka means fool or stupid. Okay? If you say to your brother, stupid or fool or Raka or Bobo, that's what it says. Again, it's, it's, he's answerable to Sanhedrin, but he who says, you fool, you will be in danger of the fires of hell. This is where we get the word raka, which is worthless. Another way to look at this is moros. Okay? This is where we get the word moron. Have you ever called somebody a moron? Have you ever been called a moron? So an enemy is someone who you perceive to be inferior to you. That's also another way of looking at an enemy. First enemy is someone who's wronged us, who would like to harm us. If there's a husband who's regularly physically abusing you, that's an enemy. He wants to harm you. But also on the other hand, the Bible is saying that if there's someone that you're looking down on, that's also an enemy. Someone that you feel that is inferior to you. For example, if you're driving this morning and there's someone there in front of you who's driving really slow, you're insulted. And maybe that's a girl who's driving. Or maybe it's a lolo. I mean, you, you tend to insult that person. That's kind of like this. Or maybe you're not like us. We're from UP. You're only from the other school. I'm not, I'm not picking on UP people here, okay? Just an example. Don't associate with them. I'm not like them. They're inferior. In fact, the Jews would think that they are the superior race and they would look at the Gentiles as the inferior race. What they would say is, you're a Gentile, you're not loved by God. You're destined to go to hell. That's how the Jews would would look at the other nationalities. And so in the same way, applying it now in our current situation, maybe looking down on another culture, Maybe this. Discriminating other people. Maybe this. The moment you actually say that I am better than you, then that person becomes your enemy. I mean, we, our culture is riddled with this. We're familiar with this. Movies actually came out, you know, are inspired with vengeance or getting even. Okay, from... It's from way back to the present. You know, the, the recent one is Fast and the Furious. It's, it's retaliation. It's natural for people to retaliate. You don't even think about it. It's just, you know, this is where we get the word dress back. I mean, if you're familiar with dress back, you know, if you're in a fraternity, you know, back in high school or in college, if somebody wrongs a brother, the whole gang would rest back would actually go after that person and it's a never-ending battle. How many of you know that when you start a fight and then the other one wants to get even and the other one wants to get even again, it will never end. You know, TV shows like Revenge also, you know, as I said earlier. In fact, even Tagalog films, actually, we can actually see that. It's all over, you know, it's not just there. Sorry. <laughs> it's my team who did this. <laughs> right, yeah. 
So what do we do now? This is what Jesus was saying in verse 43. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it was said. Then he was refuting that particular oral tradition by the religious elders. But I say to you, now he's saying, I say to you, love your enemies. This is a new teaching for them. They grew up being taught, you know, you're to love your neighbor. You know, love the Lord your God. They actually have the Shema. They declare the Lord our God is our... And they pray to the Lord every single day. They're familiar with this. Love the Lord your God with all my heart, mind, soul, and and love my neighbor as myself. Now Jesus is now, you know, speaking to them. Don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemies. And pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, how do you do that? Is that really possible? Think about one person. I mean, just pause right now. Think about one person, or maybe a group of people, who offended you, who wronged you. I mean, is it really possible for us to do this? What does it mean to love our enemies? What does it mean to pray for them, Lord, I pray for him. Kunin mo na siya ngayon. Just get him, Lord. Take him away from this earth. Verse 27, Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. From another parallel verse. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Wow. A difficult teaching. It can only be done by the grace of God, I believe. I mean, if you look at the offense, and you would actually use the word justice, it is not fair. I mean, when you define justice, what is fair? When you say justice, someone has got to pay the crime. If you were offended, the just compensation or the just uh, way to do it is that he should pay for the offense. Right? For example, if you just got your nice iPhone 6 Plus, 128 gigabytes, brand new, just came out of the box, and then you were actually just trying it out, and a friend comes into your room looking at you, oh, that's a nice iPhone 6. Can I take a look at it? And said, so you handed the iPhone 6 Plus, 128 gig to him. So he started just looking at it, tinkering, and he accidentally, it slipped from his hand. And it actually shattered in 1,000 different directions. I mean, what do you do? Do you actually just say, It's okay. God bless you. Or do you think you'd actually collect something? You know, you got to either pay this, give me the money so that I can buy a new iPhone 6 Plus, or you go and buy and give me a brand new iPhone 6 Plus. That is what I'm talking about. And that's a very good example to what may have been done to us. Maybe a family member or maybe done to you, your reputation in your office. Someone speaking bad about you. And I've left a bad word to your boss so that instead of you being promoted, another guy in the other department was promoted ahead of you. And you were the one who was deserving. Different scenarios. How do we love our enemies? Pray. Everybody say pray. Bless. Do good. 
You pray for them. First, you pray for yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help me <laughs> live this out and love this guy. I mean, let's not go far between husband and wives. In the marriage covenant, how many of you know there is, there are opportunities, not there is, there are opportunities to get offended with your husband and your, or your wife. How many of you agree with me on that, married people? And what would you do if there's a deep hurt, maybe a, an expectation that was not met, maybe a breaking of the covenant, or maybe just being insensitive to you? What do you do? Pray for her. Baguhin mo siya, Lord. Just bless her or bless him. Do good to him. Can you actually do good after you were done harm to? Matthew 5, 39-40 says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Sinabi ni Lord yan? Now I'm not here espousing you know, uh, physical abuse in the home. That if your husband is actually physically abusing you, go turn your cheek and go give your children as well to be abused by that guy. That is not what Jesus was talking about here. Right? It was not like, you know, if you have one cheek, okay, offer the other one. You know, and allow ourselves to be exploited. I, I believe that Jesus was not, was not talking about us being exploited here. I believe that if there is a chance for you to defend yourself, go and defend yourself. The wise thing to do is if you're abused, you talk to your pastors or some people in the church and get help and get out of there. You don't go and turn the other cheek and give him a knife. Go and abuse me more. Jesus is not talking about that. Amen. I hope that we will look at that. You know, Because this is a... Jewish saying. It's a cultural saying for the Jews. You know, go the extra mile. In fact, in Tagalog, in the Filipino culture, we do have our own culture, right? Kapag ka binato ka ng bato, batoy mo ng tinapay. Na nasa loob ng oven toaster, right? I mean, it's... You know, there are ways for us to be able to expound on this, but there are cultural nuances as well. So we're not saying that you go get abused and be abused all the more and somehow fulfill the law of God. We're not saying that. Are we here this morning? Jesus is not espousing, was not espousing on, on, on physical abuse. What Jesus was saying is when we are to turn the other cheek, what we are to do is we offer reconciliation and we offer peace to the other, peop- to the other person or to the other party. That is what this means. When you say, if you have been slapped on one cheek or insulted, literally that slap means to be insulted. You are to turn the other cheek. That means that you are to offer a hand of reconciliation to that person. Even if you are wrong and not be abused further. Are we getting the truth here this morning? So we are to offer relationship, forgiveness, and reconciliation. That is what we are supposed to do. To love our enemies. How do we do that? We're to pray for them. 
We're to bless them. We're to do good to them. We're to offer reconciliation to them. We are to forgive them. In fact, in a few verses before this, I think in verse 20 or 23, it says that if you are offering a gift to the altar and you realize that there was somebody offended at you, do you remember that verse? You are to leave the gift first, go to that brother and be reconciled, then go back and offer your gift. That is what we are supposed to do. In order for our prayers to be answered by God, we need to, be, to have a clean heart before the Lord. Amen. And how many of you know this is hard? I mean, this is hard. Forgiveness is not natural for us. There's a saying that goes, To err is human, to forgive is divine. Only God can forgive. But how many of you know that you and I are made in the image of God? And this has been given to us as well as an opportunity for us to forgive. Romans chapter 12, verse 20 to 21 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. Hard saying of Christ? Yes. Probably say this morning, I wish Jesus did say that. Lord, it's hard. By the grace of God, we can do this. I'm not saying this is easy, but this is a mere reflection of our relationship with God. In verse 45, it says, So that, everybody say, So that. So that you do this, you reconcile, you forgive. You pray for the other brother who offended you so that you may be sons of your father's father, sorry, father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Not, as I said earlier, not for salvation, but as an evidence of the grace of God in our lives. As an evidence of us having a relationship with the Father. In fact, in the earlier verses, it says, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your heavenly Father. The very fact that you are doing something good glorifies and honors God who is our Father. Matthew 5.44 says, For if you love those who love you, and what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the other? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be what? perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is basically talking about the standards of God, not the standard of man. Of course, we're going to be flawed. We're going to have mistakes. We're not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. The word perfect here does not imply that you're going to be sinless. The word perfect here, I believe, implies the imputed righteousness and perfection of Christ in us. It suggests completeness and maturity on the part of Christians and believers. When you're saying, be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, we strive to do that by the grace of God. We don't do that so that we can be accepted in the kingdom because we are Christians, but as a proof of Christianity, we are to live lives that are like Jesus. So every single day, as you get offended, you have a choice. Is it going to be me? Is it going to be God? A choice between me and God. A choice between you know, protecting your turf, protecting your reputation, you know, getting even, or 
just taking the high road and walking down the Calvary road and say, Lord, you paid the price and I will just submit to your will. Is it about me just getting even or let God be the one to collect and he will be the one to recompense and reward us for the things that was done, done wrong to us. I have here a very short clip that is actually a news article. Which is a story we end of tonight a, with one of the most potent powers offended. on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20, and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, yes, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. What a very moving story and touching story. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you can actually can't imagine happen in a real-life situation of, you know, 
you losing a son to someone and then ultimately him becoming like your own son as well. You know, this saying as we were, uh, you know, of, of loving your enemies, I wish Jesus didn't say to love your enemies. It makes a difficult, difficult situation. It's a very difficult saying. But I'm also glad that Jesus said, love your enemies. You know why? We used to be enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. He was the one who actually reached out to us. He was the one who prayed. He was the one who blessed us. Not only that, He gave His own Son for us. In verse 8 of Romans chapter 5, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Really, when you talk about being enemies of God, we are that. We were the enemies of God. We were in enmity with Him. We were the criminal offenders. We do not deserve forgiveness. But Jesus, out of His love for us, freely gave His life. He blessed us and He offered reconciliation to us. And I believe that the only way that we can actually find reconciliation with others is if we have an understanding of how much God has loved us and how much God has forgiven us. This is my main point. I want to close with this. Understanding God's love for us leads us to love our enemies. Difficult? Yes. Doable? I believe so. It's only by the grace of God. Amen. We hope you were inspired by that message. Listen to more podcasts from our website at www.victoryalabang.org and in the Victory Alabang app. Thank you and stay connected.